Hello everyone, I am John Allen, the editor, founder, president, and grand poobah of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. And this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we know we're serving, over, serving up leftover news, but the idea is to throw in a little sauce, a little spice, put it in the skillet, a little oil, and presto, changeo, you've got a brand spanking new sparkling dish. Got a piece of cake today because this is the 52nd episode of Last Week in the Church, which means this is our one-year anniversary. Now, it's not a calendar year because there have been times along the way where for holidays or work we skipped an episode, but it's one year of episodes. And so happy anniversary to all of you who watch the show. All right, here's what we've got on this week's menu as I incense my presentation. First of all, Pope Francis may be facing an Africa gap with the rumored exit of the Vatican's most senior prelate. In America, Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston comes out swinging against EWTN. Here in Rome, the Vatican's trial of the century hits another frustrating roadblock. One more piece of evidence that what we may be looking at here is actually the train wreck of the century. In France, the Catholic Church prepares for a fire sale to pay off sex abuse claims. And finally, here in Italy, when it comes to Italian politics, Pope Francis is once more the dog who just ain't barking. That's our rundown, so please stick around. Oh, hi. Finish that later. Okay, so we begin this week with the possible exit, uh, the rumored exit, I should say, of Cardinal Peter Turkson of Ghana, who is the Pope's prefect of the uh, brand new Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. Now, this is what we on the Vatican Beat call a mega dicastery. It was formed from the merger of four separate ad Vatican outfits five years ago, part of the Pope's reform of the Roman Curia. Whether this actually amounts to reform is another question, but in any event, it came out of the process of review of internal Vatican operations that Pope Francis launched when he was elected. And when this mega dicastery was formed, he named Turkson its first president. Turkson had previously been the pres or prefect, rather, sorry. He had previously been the president of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. He had held that position since 2009 when he was named to it by Pope Benedict XVI at the end of the Second Synod of Bishops for Africa. Turkson, by all accounts, has been one of the Pope's most loyal aides, kind of his right-hand man when it comes to social policy. He was hugely influential in the composition of the 2015 encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si. He has been one of the primary faces and voices for the Pope's message on migrants, on peace, on climate change, on basically all of Pope Francis's social priorities. So it came as something of a surprise this week when rumors began to make the rounds that Turkson might be on his way out. What we now know 
is that Cardinal Turkson reportedly has submitted his resignation to Pope Francis, although the Pope has not yet indicated whether he plans to accept it. And allegedly, Turkson, who is 73 and therefore below the traditional retirement age of 75 for Catholic bishops, although he has completed his first five-year term as head of his dicastery, reportedly, Turkson has submitted his resignation because he is, quote, fed up with internal management difficulties within his dicastery. It is, as I say, it is not clear whether Pope Francis will accept this resignation, but two points worth making about it. First, if Turkson does indeed step aside, take that in tandem with the departure in February of Cardinal Robert Sara of Guinea as head of the Congregation for Divine Worship, basically the Vatican's top liturgy office, and it would mean that there would no longer be an African prelate heading a major African department. The closest would be an African archbishop who serves as the number two official in the Vatican's missionary department, the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. But he serves under Cardinal Luis Antonio Chito Tagli of the Philippines. And therefore, Francis would undoubtedly face pressure to find another African to give a senior gig to. Bear in mind, Africa is easily the zone of the Catholic Church's most dramatic growth today. In the last quarter of the 20th century, the Catholic population of Africa increased by 6,790%. Just put that in your pipe and smoke it. 6,790% from about 4 million to about 130 million. I don't care what line of work you're in. If you've got an almost 7,000% growth rate, that's, that's not too bad. And it is, of course, the center of so much missionary and evangelical dynamism in the church today. I mean, think about it. There are already many dioceses in the United States where if all the Catholic priests from Kenya and Nigeria and South Africa and elsewhere had to go home, you would have to basically put a going out of business sign on the cathedral. I mean, it just wouldn't be sustainable. And and that's true of the Catholic Church in many parts of the world. So clearly, it would be important for the Pope to name an African. And, And here's why it's important to have an African in a senior post in the Vatican. It's not just tokenism, because that cardinal who heads up a senior Vatican position, he becomes a point of reference for the entire continent of Africa. Like, if an African bishop needs some help in the Vatican, he has some piece of business here and doesn't know how to navigate the waters, he's going to call up that cardinal and come see him. And, And that guy will informally act as his guide to all of this. If an African politician or diplomat needs help with the Vatican or is just trying to figure it out, that cardinal becomes his go-to guy. When lay movements, religious orders from Africa need something in the Vatican, they're going to reach out to the African cardinal, even though it's not really his job, just to give him some guidance, some help, some advice. So he becomes, in effect, the ambassador of Africa, of all of Africa, to the Vatican. In the same way that an American cardinal in the Vatican plays that role for Americans or a French cardinal plays that role for French Catholics and so on. So it's, it's one of the most important ways, actually, a pope has to signal to a place that he cares about it by naming one of their own to a senior Vatican post. There will be pressure to do that. The other observation worth making 
is that this probably illustrates the central Achilles heel in Francis's sort of approach to government. Francis is, of course, a maverick, right? Never saw a tradition that he wasn't willing to set aside. And that is, of course, a large part of his appeal. It gives him the ability to think outside the box, to, to look at things in fresh ways, to imagine solutions that others wouldn't see. However, in this case, what Pope Francis did was he named Michael Cherney, a Canadian Jesuit who is his right-hand man on migrant and refugee issues. He named him a cardinal, but left him in the dicastery for integral human development. So all of a sudden, this dicastery had two cardinals. You had Turkson, who was allegedly in charge, but you had Cherney, who was a cardinal himself, and therefore doesn't have to take orders from anybody. His relationship is directly with the Pope. What that means is the ship had two captains. And you know, when a ship has two captains, basically it has none, because the crew doesn't know who the skipper is. And that is a prescription for tension and chaos. Probably also worth saying that when Pope Francis decided to throw these four different departments together, there was no game plan for how that was supposed to work, how the systems were supposed to be integrated, how the personnel were supposed to be integrated, what lines of authority would be. And it's kind of been a bit of a mess ever since. Understandable in that context that maybe Turkson, who has put in 12 year long years in the Vatican, just feels like he's had enough. We will see what comes next for Cardinal Turkson, by the way, if he does indeed leave. But stay tuned, because he's only 73, and it is deeply unlikely that the Peter Turkson story in the Catholic Church is over just quite yet. All right, let's shift to America, where Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston also someone who is perceived as one of the Pope's key allies at the senior levels of the church, recently gave an interview to Elisabetta Piquet, who is a correspondent for, she's Argentinian, she's a correspondent for La Nación, kind of the paper of record in Argentina, based here in Rome, longtime Rome correspondent, in which O'Malley was asked about many things, but one of the issues he was asked about was opposition to Pope Francis in the United States. Because as you well know, there is a perception in many quarters that American Catholics just don't like the Pope, that American Catholics are more conservative, they think Pope Francis is too liberal, he's a commie, you know, a pinko, and that there is animus to the Pope for that reason. Now, what O'Malley said in response was, first of all, this opposition to the Pope in the United States is tremendously exaggerated, that actually there is great support for the Pope. And, I mean, although O'Malley didn't mention it, I mean, there is empirical support for that position. The most recent Pew Research Center poll of American Catholics found that 83% of American Catholics support the Pope. Go ask Joe Biden if he'd be happy with that as an approval rating. I suspect the answer would be a resounding yes. And every poll ever taken has always shown that. The, the vast majority of American Catholics are not invested in church politics. They're, they're not following the minute ups and downs of what Francis says or does. For them, it's enough to know he's the Pope. He's the vicar of Christ. He's the successor of Peter. Get on with it. And they're going to like the guy, whoever he is. And so O'Malley certainly has a point. But as he was discussing this issue of why opposition to Francis in America is exaggerated, Kind of unsolicited, he, he took a shot 
directly at EWTN, the Eternal Word television network founded by Mother Angelica, and famously the largest, most powerful, wealthiest media operation in American Catholicism. He said that many commentators at EWTN foment opposition to the Pope in a way that is unhealthy. And he mentioned that Pope Francis himself has addressed this. Of course, he was referring to a conversation Pope, Pope Francis had with his fellow Jesuits in Slovakia when he talked about a large Catholic television network that, 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 that doesn't like him. Everybody knew he was talking about EWTN and said they're doing the work of the devil. Now, I mean, that's strong language from anybody, but especially from a pope. And O'Malley basically echoed it in his description of EWTN. You know, what makes this especially interesting is that over the years, O'Malley has been a frequent guest on EWTN. And not so long ago, seemed to be someone who was fundamentally favorable to the network. I think what this indicates, of course, is that Francis, look, he's a polarizing figure. He radicalizes opinion. And this is another case where a bishop who not so long ago might have looked fondly in, in many ways on, on EWTN, now, given the perception that it's basically in full frontal opposition to the Holy Father, has soured on it and is willing to give it a poke in the eye in public. Not sure what the long-term fallout of that will be for EWTN, but interesting. All right, here in Rome, the Vatican's trial of the century. This is this trial that began life with 10 different individuals and a handful of corporate entities indicted and in the dock for their role in a spectacularly failed $400 million London land deal orchestrated by the Vatican Secretariat of State had its most recent hearing this week. And once again, basically nothing happened. Presiding Judge Giuseppe Pignatone had ordered prosecutors way back when, in October, that they had to decide, because they, the prosecutors in October had asked that the charges against several defendants basically be dismissed so they could re-interview them and retry them, or re-indict them, because there were problems with discovery. And Pignatoni had said, okay, you need to have that done by December. Prosecutors told him this week that they wouldn't be done until January 20th, at the earliest. Uh, happens to be my birthday, by the way, but not exactly the birthday present I'd be looking for. In any event, Pignatoni basically took a deep breath, said, well, it's obvious that we are still an open construction site, <laughs> meaning we still don't know what we're doing, and said, all right, we will adjourn until late January, and we will see where we're at. Now, look, maybe that prosecutors return those indictments in compelling legal form by late January. Maybe this trial gets off the ground and shifts to substance sometime early in the new year. But on the other hand, it seems equally plausible that prosecutors are not going to be able to get their act together. Pignatoni will simply exhaust his patience and de declare the Vatican equivalent of a mistrial. And should that be the outcome, it would, of course, be hugely embarrassing, not only for the promoters, promoter of justice office in the Vatican, essentially the, the, the prosecutor's office, their version of a DA, but it would be very embarrassing for Pope Francis's financial reforms writ large, because remember, 
when this trial was announced, it was supposed to be the ultimate proof of the seriousness of, uh, of Pope Francis about prosecuting financial crime, and that a new era of transparency and accountability was about to dawn. The fundamental issue in this trial has been, however, the prosecution's unwillingness to be transparent, which may mean no one is held accountable. And if that is the outcome, well, draw your own conclusions. All right. In the traditionally Catholic nation of France, the eldest daughter of the church, the Catholic bishops recently have been forced to announce that they are going to hold the equivalent of a fire sale selling off storied church properties as part of a plan to settle sex abuse claims triggered by a spectacular recent report about abuse in the Catholic Church in France from the period 1950 to 2000. Now, this report, which was commissioned by the bishops and entrusted to an independent commission, concluded that there could be as many as 220,000 victims of priest sex abuse in France and as many as 330,000 victims by Catholic personnel, if you include lay personnel. That number, those numbers, are hotly contested because they're not based on actual claims. They're based on statistical modeling. And whenever you engage in statistical modeling, there are going to be some people who think the models are flawed. There are critics who believe that these numbers have been radically and intentionally inflated to make the Catholic Church look bad. But in any event, it has had the effect of stimulating a large number of new civil claims. The bishops have committed to trying to settle those claims, and the commission that produced this report had advised that they do so with existing church assets rather than asking parishioners to cough up more money to help pay for the past mistakes of the church. And really, the only meaningful asset the Catholic Church in France has is its real estate. So there are dioceses that have already announced particular pieces of property they're going to be selling off. The president of the French Bishops' Conference, Archbishop Moulin Bouffour of Reims, has announced that both the conference and individual dioceses will be selling properties to try to settle these claims. La, pa La Parisienne, Paris-based newspaper, has reported that one of the properties that might be on the auction block is the historic residence of the Archbishop of Paris. It's in the 7th arrondissement. It was bequeathed in the period of Reconstruction in France to the church by a wealthy Catholic widow and is rumored to be worth about 57, 58 million bucks. My wife, by the way, has three different uses of the word bucks. There's a bad one like, that thing cost five bucks, right? There's a good one like, I only paid 12 bucks. And then there's, I think it's 24 bucks, which is kind of neutral. When you say the church is about to sell off a property worth 57 million bucks, that's the good bucks, okay? Because that's ching-ching really fast. I mean, we, you know, some critics, of course, will say that it is tragic that the church is having to sell off its patrimony as a result of horrible mistakes that were made in the past. On the other hand, I suppose it is just the temper of the times. I, I don't think, I wouldn't want to be the bishop who goes into my Sunday mass and says, hey guys, would you mind coughing up more money this week because the diocese covered up sex abuse 10 years ago and I need to pay the tab. I wouldn't want to be that guy. So I, I get it. 
Finally, here in Italy, Pope Francis is once again the dog that isn't barking. The president of Italy, and bear in mind, Italy has a head of state, head of government arrangement where there's a prime minister who runs the government, but there's a president who is the head of state, the kind of ceremonial father of the country. And at the moment, that role is played by veteran politician Sergio Mattarella. He is basically a centrist. I mean, he moved vaguely on the left for most of his political career, but he's fundamentally a man of the middle. He's kind of a national hero here in Italy. His brother, he's from Sicily. His brother was the president of Sicily. In 1980, his brother was assassinated by the Italian mob. Mattarella wanted to be an academic and a jurist, but he went into politics because he felt he had to pick up his brother's torch. And has tried by his own lights to do good ever since. And, and people here just see him as kind of the soul of the country. Now, his term is up in February, and there has been a lot of talk. Many people wanted him to stand for a second term, but that's only happened once in the history of the Italian Republic. Mattarella himself has been on record in favor of a constitutional amendment to limit the president to one term, I think felt. Having said that, he couldn't go back in his words, so he's made it abundantly clear that he's not having any of it and that he's going to leave in February. And the ultimate proof of the point was that this week he had his farewell meeting with Pope Francis. A lot of people had speculated that maybe he wouldn't show up for that meeting because there would be behind-the-scenes talks going on about trying, but he said no. And he went to the meeting and said goodbye. He and Pope Francis have always had a very close relationship. Francis is 85, Mattarella is 80, so they're both, you know, octogenarians. But more than that, they are both, I guess you would say, like centrist to left-leaning types, deep believers in social justice and in the cause of the poor. Both have known suffering in their lives, and by all accounts, there's always been a really close relationship. This was a very warm hour-long send-off. The interesting part about all this is that now the sweepstakes are on to decide who's going to succeed Mattarella. A lot of people want current Prime Minister Mario Draghi to do it, but he doesn't appear to be interested. There are other candidates whose names are being floated, including, believe it or not, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi by many conservatives, despite the kind of bunga bunga scandals and all of that that we remember from back in the day. He, Berlusconi, appears to be in the mix. Under administrations past, it would be impossible to believe that Italian politicians would be making this decision without consulting intimately and regularly the Vatican. Yet, by all appearances, Pope Francis and his team are setting this one out. This is part of Francis's broad pattern in Italy. He is very hands-on when it comes to church politics in Italy, but when he comes to the secular scene, he's content to let it run its course. We will see who comes next, but stay tuned. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. Programming note, we will not be here next Monday, December 27th. We're going to be sitting that one out for the Christmas and New Year's holidays. We will be back Monday, January 3rd. In the meantime, you will find full coverage of everything breaking in the Catholic world on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Because I won't see you before Christmas. Have a fantastic, have a Merry Christmas. 
And even in this period of Omicron, stay safe, stay healthy, find a way to be with the ones you love, and know that we're going to be doing the same here. We will see you two weeks from now. Have a fantastic and blessed holiday fortnight, and we will talk to you again soon.